All right, there you are. You're on the open road. You ever been on an interstate and you look down at that GPS and it says 342 miles to go, right? You, you feel like you're on this interstate for hundreds of miles. You're driving. It's just you. There's no one, it seems like, on the road beside you. And all of a sudden, what's, what's going to start happening as you continue to drive in that, in that monotonous noise of the car noise is almost just enveloping around you and surrounding you in this white noise what what's going to start happening right <sighs> there's your eyes right you're going to start getting drowsy right you're going to start getting drowsy and, and sure enough you're going to get drowsy and maybe your eyes are even closing a little bit and then all of a sudden crack crack there is your windshield and you go, what just happened? What just happened? Because you had to wake up first. And then you look at your windshield, and right there in your line of view is that cracked windshield. You ever been there before? I was there last week. Happened to me on the way back from Illinois. 18-wheeler changed lanes, and when he changed lanes, there went the rock right into the windshield. If you've ever been there before, you probably know what happens next. You probably know that it doesn't matter how small that crack starts out. Over time, what's going to happen to the crack? If you don't do anything with it, over time, eventually, it may take a while, but over time, it's going to expand. It may be from, from cold weather, or it may be from ice, or it may, you may hit a huge pothole or a huge bump, but sometime or the other, what's going to happen to that crack is it's going to expand. It's going to spread larger and farther on your windshield. Tonight, we are going to be investigating the first crack in the windshield when it comes to the restoration movement. Tonight, we're going to be talking about really the first chink in the armor that we can see when we look back and, and we study the the restoration movement as we have been thus far in our study, we're going to be looking at the very first crack, so to speak, in the windshield of the restoration movement. And this crack, this chink in the armor, that original, that, that, that original divide that we can see in the restoration movement that ultimately led to the full-scale broken windshield the full-scale division that we wind up seeing in the years following. Tonight we're talking about the division that took place to a movement that prided itself on unity. All of a sudden there is an extreme division between them. And just like that crack in that windshield is going to expand slowly but surely eventually over time, the division that we're talking about tonight spread throughout the brotherhood slowly but surely eventually wound up being irreparable. Our study thus far has taken us back and forth. We've, we've gone back and, and we've gone forth throughout history and the scriptures. We've been going back and forth looking at the history that we can look back and, and, and learn from. And we've also been going straight to the scriptures to, to see what we can learn from. We've been going back and forth from history 
and the scriptures to better understand how we find ourselves where we are tonight. How we got to the point that, that we are tonight. How, how we got to the conclusions that we've gotten to and, and all the different things that had to happen for us to be where we are tonight spiritually. In phase one of our study, we gave ourselves an introduction to the movement. And this introduction spanned uh, three lessons where we went straight to God's Word and we tried to find uh, what God's Word has to say about restoration. We learned that when it comes to the restoration plea and when it comes to restoration theology and when it comes to the restoration formula, all of those things are as old as the Scriptures themselves. And the Scriptures themselves have a plea for restoration. The scriptures themselves have a plea for restoration theology. When we go back and see the biblical basis for restoration or when we go back and, and we talk about what the destination is for our restoration and how that is what Ephesians 5 and verse 27 says. That we might be a glorious church without spot or blemish. Holy in His sight. That's the destination for our restoration. And we also talked about what it means to depart to the right and depart to the left and what it means to add and to take away and what it means to loosen and what it means to bind in phase one of our study. In phase two of our study, we went back to where it all began, where the wheels fell off the train, where the train went off the tracks, where the puzzle got jumbled in the first place, and we started talking about the foundation of where this problem began. In order to understand how a puzzle is put together, you have to understand how it got jumbled up in the first place. And so that's what we did in phase two of our study. In phase three of our study, we talked about some of the prolific moments in the movement we're studying, these two quarters, the restoration movement. The really, we started talking about the formation of our movement and looked at some of those landmark moments. And then in phase four of our study thus far, we've had two studies in phase four where we are talking about the instruction of the movement. We're looking at how the, the, the restorers instructed on certain things. What did the restorers have to say about certain issues? What were some of the obstacles that they faced? And, and how did they address those issues? And in our last study, we looked at baptism. We looked at baptism and, and how that was one of the most prevalent issues that the restorers had to face. That was one of the number one issues that they had, had the obstacles they had to go against. And so we looked at baptism and, and we saw the restorer's formula when it comes to baptism was what it is with every other issue. We're going to do pattern theology and we're going to ask what are the commands and what are the examples and, and what are the implications in Scripture that, that we can necessarily infer what God is trying to say. And we saw that baptism is done by immersion. We saw that baptism is our commission. We saw that baptism is for remission. We saw that baptism is for admission. And we saw that baptism is not an option. And tonight, you look back at that study on baptism and you're like, that's as solid as it gets. 
That's as solid as it gets. You, you can't get as clear. The scriptures don't get clearer than what we talked about last time. Tonight, we don't have that kind of study tonight. Tonight, we don't have a, 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 a study that is, is going to be uh, as black and white. We're not going to have a study that, as, that is as clear-cut because tonight we wade through the waters of that other piece of the formula that we talked about a few weeks ago. That other part to the recipe that's a lot more difficult to understand. Instead of having a command or an example or an implication tonight, we're going to be talking about and wading through the waters of expediency. We're going to be talking about expedient. What, what is expedient? What, what is acceptable when it comes to the way we live and the way we worship and the way we practice our faith? And if you remember back to our study on pattern theology, when we first started to understand what the formula is that we interpret Scripture with, when we talked about that, we talked about what expediency is. What does expediency mean? We talked about the qualifications of something that is expedient. We talked about the test of expediency, and we talked about all that. But tonight, especially when we start to actually get into it, you're going to very quickly understand that this is the hardest piece of the formula to understand. This is the hardest piece of the recipe to get right. Because what you're going to see is some are going to contend that blank, you fill in the blank, some are going to contend that that is perfectly permissible under the idea of expediency. Some are going to contend that, that this is expedient because God's Word is silent on it. And then you're going to have just as many on the other side that say, this is not expedient because God's Word is not silent on it and God's Word is clear on the matter. And what we're going to find out is, the same way we talked about a few weeks ago, whenever you start to mess with the formula, whenever you don't get the formula right, whenever you don't get the recipe right, the whole product can be damaged. The whole product can be unusable. The whole product is up to demise. And we're going to see very closely that thing tonight with our discussion. So naturally, having said that, you can imagine our discussion tonight is going to be a little bit more difficult. Our discussion tonight is going to be a little bit more challenging. You can imagine our study tonight is going to maybe be unresolved when we leave here tonight. Because even among us, there might be some who think this on this matter and some who think that on this matter. And so what we're going to have to do tonight is we're going to have to look to God's Word. We're going to have to study it for ourselves and understand that you may leave here not resolved, not satisfied. And if that's the case, well, welcome to expediency. Welcome to expediency. This last piece of the formula. The crack in the windshield that we are going to be studying tonight is the issue of missionary societies. If you've studied the restoration movement, you, you, you may know what that is, but it's probable that many here tonight are like, well, I don't know what in the world that is. I don't know what a missionary society is. I've never heard that statement, so how can this be such a big issue? 
How can a missionary society be such a big issue that needs to be dressed, uh, addressed over a whole class if I've never even heard about it? Well, the reason you haven't heard about it, if that's the case, the reason that you don't have a working knowledge of what a missionary society is, is because of the visceral debate that took place over 200 years ago in the Restoration Movement. Maybe tonight, as you sit here tonight, you have no idea what a missionary society is. Well, it's because people hundreds of years ago already had this debate, and at this point it may be settled. I want to remember back to our class when we talked about baptism. This was a, a quote from, from Bill Humble in his story of the Restoration. You can read that. I'm not going to read it again. But in that quote, and this is how, how we teased this lesson tonight at the end of last lesson, we, we talked about how Walter Scott really helped us understand what maybe the steps of salvation were. And he, and as Bill Humble says, he restored the gospel, right? With this idea of baptism is for the remission of your sins and, and, and what baptism does for the Christian. And, and he talks about how Walter Scott helped give the restoration movement its most, its most successful evangelism tool. And that was this, this evangelism that was based on logic and reason and, and opening up the scriptures and understanding what God is trying to say in those scriptures, this, this logical approach to soul winning. And so naturally, what happens after this, this gospel has been restored, after, after this effective evangelistic tool has been given to the Lord's church, to the brotherhood, the next natural question you have to ask is, What's the best way to spread that gospel? What's the best way to, 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 to take that message, to take that good news and, and spread it throughout the nation? What's the most effective way to, to take that good news out to the world? And what you're going to see tonight is opposing opinions to the answer to that question is what fractured the movement wound up beginning the divide that led to the ultimate split in the coming years. So let's get right into it. When it comes to missionary societies, you're going to see this, another quote from Bill Humble. He says, the 1830s were a time of unity, optimism, and remarkable growth for the restoration movement. Woo! Right? But, he says, it was also a time when seeds of controversy were being sown serious controversy which would ultimately rupture the unity of the movement and so what we see is when we come to the restoration movement after the stone and and Campbell movements unite right we talked about them extending the right hand of fellowship they had this effective evangelistic tool obviously and naturally Alexander Campbell wanted to spread that good news. Alexander Campbell wanted to do everything possible to, to spread the good news of baptism to the nation, to the world. Alexander Campbell finally felt like they were ready, they were able, and that it was time to actually obey the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Alexander Campbell felt like now that we have this evangelistic tool where we understand what baptism does for the Christian, what baptism means for the Christian, what baptism uh, uh, is, how we are to baptize, we can go out into the world and we can preach this message, but we got to do it and it's time to do it now. So in 1831, Alexander Campbell publishes a series of seven articles in his Millennial Harbinger called The Cooperation of Churches. The Cooperation of Churches. That's how Alexander saw the movement and the message finally being spread. Look at this quote. It says, Campbell believed that the world could never be evangelized unless the churches cooperated in the proclamation of the gospel. And his articles were a plea for this cooperation. These seven articles in the Millennial Harbinger were, were a plea that the congregations could, could come together and, and pool their resources and come together and in that way they could spread the gospel. What Campbell realized was that the brotherhood was very young compared to the denominations. The brotherhood, the, the churches of Christ were, were so young that, that they didn't have the, the financial abilities or capabilities that some of these denominations had in spreading the gospel. And because they were young, because the church was young, they weren't able to adequately fund the spreading of the gospel financially, perhaps. So in order to upstart the spreading of the message, in order to upstart this, this gospel being spread, why don't we have individual congregations cooperate with each other? Sounds logical. What he means by cooperate is, why don't we have congregations pooling their money together in order to help spread the gospel? You might think, it's a big deal. Well, we're going to see. Look at this quote. But he insisted that the exact details of how churches should cooperate were left to the discretion of every generation. What's that idea of left to the discretion? Well, expediency. All right, so it was left to the discretion of every generation, Campbell suggested, as one, uh, as one example of how congregations might work together. All the churches in his home county might have an annual general meeting. Meaning all, all the churches in, in Gwinnett County, for example, would meet once a year at which plans would be made for evangelizing the area. An evangelist would be selected and provisions would be made for his support. And again, you know, what, what's wrong with that, you may be thinking. What happens after he writes these seven articles and, and he has this statement here and, and he's trying to, to get people to cooperate with one another, what happens is, is naturally, who's writing here? We're talking about Alexander Campbell. And at the time, that there was no name bigger than Alexander Campbell in the Brotherhood because of his powerful preaching and his powerful writings and his powerful debates. And so when Alexander Campbell said, let's cooperate, all the churches, a lot of the churches, 
We're like, let's do it. Let's cooperate. Because of Campbell's influence, many cities around America began to establish what they called cooperation meetings. And as these cooperation meetings progressed, you're going to start seeing the implementation of secretaries, treasurers, and committees, and vice presidents, and presidents. Are alarm bells ringing off yet? Hope so. Hope alarm bells are ringing off. You're hearing a bunch of words that you don't find in Scripture from a movement that prides itself on Scripture. Establishing presidents and vice presidents and treasuries or tre treasurers and, and secretaries. That, you don't see that in the Scriptures, but here Campbell is saying, let's do it. Let's do it. And as you see these cooperation meetings starting to gain more and more traction... On the flip side of the coin, you're starting to see opposition to these meetings grow more and more in traction. The opposition to these, this new idea for, for spreading the gospel is growing more and more, just the same as these cooperation meetings are growing more and more. Look at this quote. You can see it. T.M. Henley, a prominent Virginian, wrote Campbell in 1836 that it seemed to him like a departure from the simplicity of the Christian institution to have cooperation meetings with presidents and secretaries calling for the messengers of churches and laying off of districts. Henley recalled that this was how Baptist associations had originated in Virginia and remembering how the Christians had been treated by Virginia Baptist associations, he commented, the burnt child dreads the fire. What a quote. Let's break that one down. Let's try to understand what uh, Henley was saying. I believe what Henley was trying to point out is, how can we claim to follow the New Testament pattern for organization, for autonomy, for church governance, if we are subverting what God's command is by exchanging elders and deacons for presidents and treasurers? How can you exchange what God set forth for, for elders and deacons to do to, to give that job to a man-made institution and presidents and treasurers and secretaries? Where, where, where do you get off, Alexander? Where, what, 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 you just making this up as you go? That's what Henley's trying to say. What did he mean by this idea of the burnt child dreads the fire? That's a, what's the word for a phrase? I don't know. Anachronism or something? I don't know. One of those isms. that You might have to read a couple times to understand. You may have to read this line a few times to understand what he's trying to say. I don't think this is language we use today, but it's actually a pretty powerful message. What Henley's trying to say is, hey, hey guys, haven't we been through this before? Hey, haven't we done this before? Haven't we already touched that? You ever have a kid that wants to get closer and closer to that burning eye on the stove? What happens when that... That was me. What happens when that kid touches that stove eye? Is he going to want to touch it again? No. Unless you're like me and you're dumb. Right? But 
Most kids are going to look at that eye of, of that stove and they're going to say, I'm not going to touch that ever again because it burned me. That's what Henley's trying to say about these societies. Hey, didn't we already get bit by this before? Hey, didn't we already touch this fire before? Do you not remember what happened to us the last time we had to answer to some governing body outside of our individual congregation? Do you remember when there were governing bodies that handed down judgments on our individual congregation, handed down verdicts that we had to follow? Do you remember what it was like not to have the autonomy to make our own decisions? Guys, you're playing with fire, he says. You're out there playing with fire after having already been burned. What are you doing? The burnt child dreads fire, usually. But apparently this was a fire they wanted to be burned by again. Inley is trying to say, if you play with fire, you're going to be burned. That's exactly what happens to the restoration movement. Because obviously Campbell fires back on Henley, and instead of a seven article, a seven series article, he writes and publishes a 16 article series on what he calls the nature of church of Christian organization. And in that he says this here. The church, Campbell argued, is described as the body of Christ. And a body must necessarily be organized. Admitting that the New Testament does not provide for any general organization of the church, Campbell concluded the creation of such an organization is left to the judgment of the churches. What's this idea of left to the judgment of the churches? We're talking about expediency. Then he says he proposed that the churches hold a convention and devise a general organization. What is Campbell proposing when he talks about a general organization? He's saying all the brotherhood comes together to have this talk, to have this discussion. To have a general organization means to have a superseding governing body over all the brotherhood. To have this governing body that hands down decisions and hands down judgments and even handles the money. And Campbell even calls it a convention. If you're aware of the denominational world, you know that many denominations have this. What are you thinking of right now when you hear the word convention? I hear that and I think of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is what makes the decision for a lot of the Baptist churches. And they hand down decisions and they hand down statements and they hand down who gets what money. And they do all those different things. That's exactly what, what we're talking about tonight when we think about the missionary society. And so obviously there's going to be some contention. There's going to be some opposition to this idea of having a general organization, having a headquarters, so to speak, or having a convention. And it's going to come from Alexander Campbell's best friend. 
Campbell's old friend, Walter Scott, was strongly opposed to Campbell's proposal for a general organization. Campbell had stated repeatedly that churches were deficient in organization. But Scott did not agree. He insisted that when a church had elders and deacons, it was already organized. And he claimed that this was the view of the entire brotherhood. And he asked rather sharply, Who made Brother Campbell an organizer over us? That's pretty powerful language, isn't it? Coming from a best friend. Other than that, you're going to see that this quote right here is what really caused the true divide. Because it, it, it was a true divide now. You had Alexander Campbell, the most prominent figure in the movement, and you had his very best friend who had been with him side by side. Completely disagree. Notice also that Walter Scott, when we think about him, what did we just get through saying about Walter Scott? He was the one who supposedly is accredited with giving the the, the movement its greatest evangelistic tool. He was the one who who talked about baptism is for their mission of sins and what baptism is for. And he he highlighted those scriptures and he came up with this logical salvation that you go through the scriptures and understand it for yourself. He gave the movement its most successful evangelistic tool we read a, a minute ago. He is vehemently opposed to this missionary society. And what you're going to see is Walter Scott and many others started to feel like Alexander Campbell was veering to the right or veering to the left or adding or taking away or loosening and binding where God has not authorized. If Walter Scott... Campbell's best friend can say, who made Brother Campbell an organizer over us? What he's saying is, in effect, what gives him the right? Who's this guy to tell all these congregations what they should do? In our day, we may say he's getting too big for his britches. Here's another quote. Since the autonomy of each local church had been a cherished principle in the restoration movement, there were obviously serious problems in the proposal. How could independent churches hold a convention to consider an organization? Who could call such a convention? Where would it be held and would the brotherhood accept the organization? When you think about this quote here, I don't think it could possibly be better said than what what is said right here. Because the idea of individual autonomous congregation and individual autonomous governing is the core of the restoration movement, of the restoration principle. And we have seen that all the way back to the time of Scotland in our study of the formation of the movement. Went back in the phases or so ago. We saw that all the way back to the roots of this restoration idea, all the way back to the time of John Glass and and the Haldane brothers and the Sandeman brothers and the Greville Ewing who taught Alexander Campbell 
all the way back to that time we saw that the very core of the message was congregationalism that no governing body can tell an individual congregation what to do with their money or what to do with 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 anything individual autonomous congregations the only person the only thing that can render a judgment on a congregation is the Word of God not a governing body made up of men and instead of promoting that freedom, promoting the freedom of individualistic congregations, missionary societies attempted to subject everyone to the will of the general convention. Whatever the general convention, whatever the general brotherhood together decide, that's what it was going to be. The quote, look back at it, says, who could call such a convention? Who, could, who, who has the authority to call all the congregations in the brotherhood together? Well, that should only be Jesus Christ himself. That's why he says, who, who could call this such convention? Sounds an awful lot like having an earthly supreme leader, like the Catholic Church has the Pope. We've talked multiple times about the problems that come from that. But, alas, in 1849, the American Christian Missionary Society was instituted. Alexander Campbell served as the president of that society until the day he died 17 years later. 1849 is when this society was established. And what follows is a decade of division. A decade of, of, of a sheer divide between opinions and opposition to this society. And you're going to see the movement that, that once pled for unity was openly engaging in formal debates and arguments through periodicals, through actual debates, Instead of, of accomplishing its original goal, the original goal, we can definitely say, was to spread the gospel. Instead of accomplishing that goal of spreading the gospel, the missionary society only spread division. What's going to happen is someone's going to call out Alexander Campbell because he hasn't always felt this way. He hasn't always felt this way about the missionary society. In fact, back in 1823, in his own periodical, he wrote this. The churches of the New Testament age were not fractured into missionary societies. For the early Christians knew nothing of the hobbies of modern times. They dared not transfer to a missionary society or Bible society or education society a cent or a prayer, lest in doing so they should rob the church of its glory and exalt the inventions of men above the wisdom of God. In their church capacity alone, they moved. Naturally, when Alexander Campbell makes such a staunch stance on this in 1823, Someone's going to dredge it up from the past. 26 years later, sure enough, someone dredges it up and says, what's going on here? That's when Jacob Kreeth Jr. 
He says, if you were right in the Christian Baptist, you are wrong now. If you are right now, you were wrong then. Creeth charged that supporters of the society had totally abandoned the rule that the Bible alone is the religion of Christians. What a powerful quote there from Jacob Creeth Jr. Calling out the most prominent figure in the movement at the time, the most prominent voice in the whole movement. He's saying, you've totally abandoned the thing we built the whole thing off of. One of the most uh, fascinating characters, figures, historical figures in the Restoration Movement is someone that we haven't talked about yet. We haven't mentioned him yet in any of our studies. We're going to talk about him now. We're going to talk about him probably for the next few weeks, some of the things that he had to say. He was one of the most prominent figures, especially after uh, Barton W. Stone and, and, and Alexander Campbell passed away. But it's Benjamin Franklin. No, not that Benjamin Franklin. There's another Benjamin Franklin in the Restoration Movement. And it, he was a distant relative of the American uh, Benjamin Franklin you're thinking of. Not that Benjamin Franklin, but this Benjamin Franklin. This Benjamin Franklin was one of the biggest and most profound and, and most important figures in all of the Restoration Movement. And this is what he had to say about the Missionary Society. Before we read it, I want to say at one point in his life, at the beginning of this Missionary Society debate, he was all for it. Towards the end, he studied and disagreed with it. And this is what he said. The circumstance that they had no missionary societies in the first state of the church of itself does not prove we may not have them. But the fact that the Lord ordained the congregations with their officers and made it their work to convert the world with the additional fact that we have their example in sending our preachers with the circumstance that they had no missionary societies, but the churches proves it is wrong for individuals to create missionary societies separate from the churches as substitutes to do the work which the Lord appointed for the churches. And that's from Earl Irving West's book, Search for the Ancient Order, volume number two. There's a lot to chew on that one. But what Benjamin Franklin is saying is God ordained the offices that the church should have. God ordained that, that, that elders and, and deacons should be the leadership of the congregation, not some governing body, not, not some, some governing people that hands down judgments on all of these what are supposed to be autonomous congregations. And so tonight, if you're sitting here and you're hearing all of these quotes and you still don't understand necessarily what a missionary society is, I get it. That's maybe my fault. You're sitting there and you're thinking, what is the big deal here? If that's you, I understand. Because this can get confusing sometimes. This can get confusing to try to understand something that maybe you haven't been, you haven't studied. But if that's you, in effect, listen to this. This is what a missionary society would be, in a nutshell, way too oversimplified, so don't get mad at me if I oversimplify it. In effect, a missionary society would be as if 
the Buford elders had to pool their money with the Avondale elders and with the Piedmont Road elders, and they had to send it to a secular organization, not a congregation, to a secular organization hundreds of miles away, and then that organization would then do what they saw fit with the money. And we would have no say and no oversight for how that money was spent. And in doing so, there would be no personal involvement, no personal investment, no personal relationships built with the missionaries or with their works. Sounds ridiculous, right? Sounds ridiculous to think that this would be the best way to do things. But what we've got to realize is that to this very day, that is what many denominations do. To this very day, that, that, that is the exact practice that they do. And when you look at those denominations and you see the amount of money they're able to raise and the amount of impact they're able to have, Campbell's and others may even say, the ends justify the means. You ever hear somebody say that? Hey, man, hey, listen, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how you got there as long as you get to the destination where souls are being saved. Isn't that what really matters? Someone says, I mean, come on, Ben. We're talking about souls, and as long as, as, as we're saving souls, that's all that matters. Does it matter how it's done so long as it gets done? And where that might be true in many phases of life, I'd, I'd love for you to show me an example of that being true in Scripture. The ends justify the means. This is the very thought process that's going to lead to all manner of other problems that the church is going to face in the next years. It's that process that leads to the very to the very theological fallacies and errors that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks. The ends justifying the means is perhaps the most unbiblical phrase you could ever hear. Because if the means are not in line with the pattern of God's Word, then the ends aren't being met, regardless of what the result may seem. Yeah.
so very right. well funded that his his ultimate goal drove him to to make this radical change that you just cannot understand why he would do that. Okay, for those on that as, as a as a a vehicle to reach that uh, <coughs> unity of Christendom, which he believed would bring on the millennium and the thousand-year reign of Christ. So, for those online listening, can't hear the. Uh, comment brother Jim Whitmire has uh, just brought up you know why would Campbell do this why would Campbell have such a drastic flip in, in opinion why would he uh, go down this route why, why would he uh, go against what God's word says and uh, you know that's, that's, that's a question that we may not know because we weren't there and weren't able to ask him and I, I, I struggle with hundreds of years later trying to assign motive behind someone I didn't know. I think we get mad about that when they do that to the Founding Fathers and some of the things they did. And we judge them by the standard we have hundreds of years later. And instead of allowing them to uh, live in their time and us in our time. But I'll try to answer this question by saying this. When it comes to Alexander Campbell, I do believe that his primary goal was to save souls, was to baptize people, was to immerse people in water and to get them the remission of their sins and to, and to add them to the kingdom of, of Christ. But just as you see in the secular world, sometimes people in the spiritual world go about that the wrong way. Go about that perhaps in a rushed or, or in a manner that, that isn't the best way. You're going to see that with some of the other discussions we're having in the rest of this class. Where as long as this idea, the ends justify the means, I believe that's where Campbell was. The ends justified the means to him. And when it comes to the millennialism, that's something I think all of us need to study more. But especially when it comes to Campbell, I don't know, at least in my point in my study right now, that I'm able to look back and, 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 and cast stones on where he was because I simply didn't know the man. And I believe he was trying to do whatever it took to save souls. But what we see, regardless, Brother Jim, of what his motive was, what you're going to see is this quote, the ends justify the means, is not right. Either way, whether his motive was to push some kind of, uh, of uh, very, very unscriptural thing or, or whether it was pure in heart, Either way, it, the ends do not justify the means. When we try to make application for ourselves tonight, everybody, we try to look at ourselves and we try to take this lesson, try to take this issue into our lives, I think the question we have to ask is, how important is consistency to you? How important is the idea of consistency in our lives. Because when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our lives today, I think consistency is a hard thing to come by these days. It seems like more and more people that once believed one thing are off believing the complete opposite. And is that not what we witness with Alexander Campbell? 
who in 1823 believed one thing about the missionary societies, but in 1849 became a president of one. Alexander Campbell, we know we talk very highly of him in many lights. I think we should. But if this lessens anything, it's an example that we are not disciples of Alexander Campbell. If this lessens anything, it should, tell, it, it, it should tell you that Alexander Campbell was not, you know, the 15th apostle. By any means. If this lesson should tell you anything, it's that everyone can make mistakes. Not, every, not, not, not a single person that doesn't have a miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit can discern all things perfectly. But what Alexander Campbell wound up doing is proving himself to be just as inconsistent as the doctrines and practices that he originally set out to restore. Campbell became the very thing in this example. He became the very thing the thing he wants to test it. And that's inconsistency. When it comes to inconsistency, inconsistency is the enemy Christianity. It is a disease that slowly spreads and cripples our ability to grow the kingdom of God and win souls. Because when Christians are inconsistent, it gives the world an excuse to remain in the world. And even though we know that about inconsistency, even though we know inconsistency in our lives and in our, the way we proclaim the gospel and the way we live out the gospel, when we have inconsistency in our life, it's a, it's a crack on the windshield that's going to slowly expand over time. And you see inconsistency, unfortunately, all the time in the Lord's church. You see it in this congregation. You see inconsistency when, when people who used to be here every time the doors are open are now here every now and then or even not at all. You see inconsistency when the truth that used to be fought for, stood for, and contended for is watered down so as not to be as, as offensive. You see inconsistency when someone points a finger at a brother or sister for not coming to worship because of COVID, but you better not point at me when I don't come to worship because of sports. That's inconsistency. And with human beings, with mankind, you can come up with thousands of more inconsistencies perhaps in our lives. With human beings and with mankind, there will always be inconsistency. You know what's amazing about God? You know what's amazing about God's Word? There is nothing or no one more consistent than God and His Word. I know we've been using this passage a lot lately. Buckle up. We're just now into January, so we're going to be keeping using it. We're going to be using it this weekend in our charge weekend. It's our theme verse for 2023, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. 
Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is of all and who is above all and who is through all and in you all. When it comes to God and when it comes to his word, it cannot get more consistent than this. The message of God's word is consistent. It is uniform. It is unchanging. And in a world of confusion and distortion, there is a chance for us to come together into one body. For us to come together into one spirit, into one hope, into one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That is as consistent as it gets. When we look at this passage this whole year, when we think about our study tonight, that's what God intended. God intended for, for He and His children to be consistent in our lives. And when we depart to the right and when we depart to the left, when we add or take away here and, and loosen and bind there, we become inconsistent. When the children of God are inconsistent, I said it earlier, it gives the world a chance to have an excuse. And that's the lesson we learned from our study tonight. Inconsistency gives birth to more inconsistency. exactly what you're going to see in the next few weeks in our studies together. But for now, tonight, the glass is cracked. It is slowly but surely going to expand, and it won't be too long until the windshield is shattered. The movement which once leaned on logic and reason is now operating on the idea that the ends justify the means. And they are practicing unrightfully unrightfully hidden under the umbrella of expediency. What will it lead to? What will this slippery slope breed as the years progress? That is to be continued. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for the time we've had tonight. We pray that we can uh, look to the scriptures, look to your word, and discover the pattern that you have revealed for us to follow. We thank you for this study, and we pray that uh, we, we can take it into our lives and, and think about whether or not we are inconsistent, whether the image that we put across matches what is actually true, whether we are putting across a fake image to the world or inconsistent message to the world. Lord, we pray that we can all unite with you and your word to be consistent figures to the people that we come into contact with so that everyone that might know us or see us may know that you live in us. We thank you so much for being so consistent in our lives and giving us a word that is absolute. Pray that we can live by it this week. In Jesus' name.